Well, hi, everybody, and uh, welcome to the Data-Driven Real Estate Podcast, um, the podcast for real estate professionals dedicated to driving business success using data. I'm Sean O'Toole, and today we have with us Bruce Norris. Hi, Bruce. Sean, how you doing? I'm doing awesome. This is so awesome that uh, the tables are finally turned. You've uh, interviewed me and had me on your panels uh, so many times over the last 10 years, and, and I've never had the chance to interview you. So I'm really excited about today. Well, you and I have had so many individual conversations too. So uh, yeah, I can't wait. Yeah, yeah, no, this will be good. Um, I actually wanted to start way back at the beginning. And, um, you know, how did you get your start? Because you really started off as a real estate investor, right? Today, you're a hard money lender. You're famous for your data-driven real estate reports. Um, but you really got your start um, knocking on doors. Yeah, I was just flipping houses. So, you know, various ways to do that. Uh, started in about 1981, worked for a company for three months, and then did it on my own ever since. And um, I, I probably did it for almost 15 years and about 10 years into it, I, I just had the feeling that I just knew the business really well and there was no such thing as California real estate going in reverse. So I built ten, uh, seven custom homes in Palm Springs right at the wrong time. <laughs> and, uh, it took me about two and a half years of getting, uh, getting that solved. And then Aaron graduated from high school and I remember buying a Honda Civic. This is where the data started to get into my head. I buy a Honda Civic for fifteen seven, and the next day buy a house in Riverside, a three bedroom house for thirteen three. And, wow! Yeah, and it just those numbers happening right next to each other. And I had just emerged, you know, mentally from a, a market five years before that where real estate could do no wrong, and everybody, everybody's house went through the roof. So that was the mindset until about 90 when it reversed. And then in 95, I'm buying a house for 13 grand. To make it even more <laughs> profound, it was a VA home that's on a VA list. And you don't even get to buy the house until it goes through the occupant uh, group. So no one in existence wanted to buy the house. It was on the list for 15 grand. And then it went to the investors and I was literally the only bidder in the nation and I got it for the maximum underbid. When you go to escrow and you're the only one in America that wants a house, you think about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Now, like, you know, coming back to like first getting started, right? Like I know we, we see folks all the time saying, hey, I want to get started. I want to get into real estate investing. And I know this is dialing the clock way back, but I just, you didn't have, uh, did you have a, like a formal education in real estate or anything else? I mean, how did, how did you make that very first step? Someone that I knew said, you know what, you might be good at what I do. So he worked for a company that bought houses and, uh, and I, I thought, you know what, and it was really not even a formal introduction. I actually was told that to even apply for a job, I had to get a license. Well, back then you could accomplish it very easily. I took a two-day Lumblow class, got my license, and went applied for the job in front of the owner, who was a 28-year-old, you know, and that's about <laughs> where I was. And um, the first question he asked me was, how long have you had your license? I said, one day. 
And he laughed at me. He's the largest home buyer in Orange County. And he laughed at me. He said, yeah, there's no place for an inexperienced agent. So that was supposed to be the end of the interview. But I was from sales and I just thought, you know what? I'm not going to accept that in my head. That's not the answer that I want. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. I said, isn't the bottom line around here whether you buy properties for a profit or not? He says, yeah. I said, you'll know in 30 days I can do that better than anybody you have. And... You know, in a way, I guess I passed the first test of being a property buyer. I didn't take no uh, as a final answer. And he says, okay, pal, you got it. So I didn't know anything. I knew nothing about real estate. I didn't even know. I didn't know what a grant deed was. He had no training. I went into an office with five other buyers. He ran a full page ad in the back of the penny saver all over Orange County and Riverside and San Bernardino. And when the phone rang the sixth time, it was all mine. Well, I still had a job. I was selling electrical stuff for the first four hours a day, came in at noon, and I had 30 days to prove myself. So, you know what? I didn't even know what a foreclosure was. I didn't even know what escrow was. But what I did know, and I got pretty quickly the concept, was that he had cash and you had equity and his stuff's better than yours. And I could sell that proposition. And so in the first month, I literally bought 10 houses and made a year's worth of money in commission. And I did it the second and third month as well. Now, you know, like um, I had, I found my success in trustee sales, which you found success in later with your son, Greg. And um, I really liked trustee sales because it was a very, I've always been a data driven person. Right. And it was very analytical. And, uh, you know, we can argue whether or not I'm a good people person. Um, I, I would say that I, you know, was not as good at, I don't think I would have had your success, um, back then responding, you know, to, to answering those calls that came in. Um, and, uh, you know, so it, strong people skills, right. Would you say that was kind of the key to, to understanding that, or was there something more, yeah, there is some, some other piece. Is it, is it, it like understanding, reading the person and understanding their needs? What, what, what's kind of the key to being successful uh, when you're taking those calls that, you know, we buy houses calls? For me, you know, when I, I went on my own just 90 days after my first phone call to anybody and I continued to buy houses on my own. And I thought the success that I had was because I was honestly listening to the person's situation and bombarding it with solutions that many times didn't have anything to do with me. So I, it, there were times I'd get calls and I'd go, okay, well, I don't think it's necessary for you to sell that house to an investor. Why don't you just list it with a realtor? And you know what I found out is that the person that was going to sell me the house, and this is, this is an actual conversation. There was a home in Corona. A guy told me it's worth about 135. I owe 76 on it. And I just want to, I just want to deed it to somebody. That was the real conversation. I said, well, why would you do that? Why don't you list it? I said, he said, I won't list it. I said, why don't you rent it or rent for more than a payment? And I gave him a few more and he goes, you know, you run an ad that you buy houses. Do you want to buy a house or not? I said, are you telling me that you're <laughs> going to find somebody to deed the house to today? He said, yes. I said, okay. So I went over to see it. And when I'm talking to him, I said, I, I, I'm going to buy your house, but I'm completely confused about the why. Why is this important to you? Because I could tell when we signed the deal, his shoulders relaxed and the pressure of the world came off of him. I said, I don't understand that. What's the deal? He said, I've never owed money in my entire life. 
I have an income from a New York building. It's 10 grand. I don't need debt. I just don't want it. I said, okay. And I realized, okay, sort of like CarMax. It was run your house by me. Let me give you an all cash offer. You can say no. But I realized there were times that people wanted to say yes, if you could give them a pretty good rationale for it. The hardest one I ever bought was a 7,000 square foot house in Orange County. And this guy was a hardcore business owner of like a call center that had 100 or 200 people that cold called. So he was the owner of that business. You can imagine his mentality. So I came in with an offer at 65 cents on the dollar of a home in Orange County. He took it to his accountant. The accountant came back and said, yeah, don't do it. Well, he had explained me a situation. I thought he should do it. So the next day I came back and I had a nine page explanation of why he should do it. And when he saw me, he said, I told you, I don't want to talk to you. I said, yeah, you told me that for all the wrong reasons. Sit down with me for five minutes and you'll make a better decision. And he did. Well, you know, when you're buying 700 grand of real estate, getting paid 3%, that's a 20 grand check. And for me, that was a big deal. Yeah. So, you know, I think, you know, getting back to why it works, I think you have to have a pretty big why. Why do I need to make this happen? And I didn't have that. I was a very motivated person. I saw a chance to get out from under, uh, you know, making a living the normal way and, you know, living um, on 30 grand. You know, I honestly, before I got that job, I thought making a grand per year you were old was my goal. So I was 28 and I had Every just, year you were old. Yeah. So, <laughs> right. so you're making $28,000 a year at 28. I, well, I, just passed, I had just passed 30 and I thought, yeah, I've reached it, man. <laughs> and then you made 30 grand the first month doing something different. And right. then just went, holy cow, that is astonishing. And I just got jazzed about the potential. Yeah. So yeah, I was motivated. Yeah, 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 for sure. When did you make the transition to hard money? Was it straight from buying houses to hard money or was there something in between? It was quite a long time because the Norris Group really didn't open for hard money uh, till 90, maybe six, 97. Okay. It's quite a ways, quite a ways after that. And uh, how that occurred is that I was, I was really just working on my own, buying my 30, 40 houses a year out of my house office, going to auctions, going to HUD auctions, all that stuff. And uh, there was somebody that wanted to promote my seminars and she wanted to promote a boot camp. She says, you really do something very uh, unusual. I could sell you uh, an audience of 10 or 15 people out every month at three grand a piece. And she went off, she went after me for about a year on that. And I finally thought, okay, actually probably would work. So I decided on Sunday night after speaking in San Diego that I would find a commercial building. This is a true story. I look at Sunday night, I come home, open up the paper and there's a commercial building that's got like a square box ad. It said value 300 grand for sale for 120. I said, okay, well that's got my name on it. So yeah. I, called, I called up and the guy and a partner were, were splitting up. They owed 72 grand on a property. And they wanted to carry the paper at 4%. Get, I said, why don't you guys take 10 grand and split it and forget it? And they did. So I bought it for 82 grand. And when I, and it was only a five-year-old building. And when I went to the bank, 
I wanted to purposely assume their loan because I wanted a relationship with the bank and get a credit line. And when the guy looked at the purchase prices, he says, is the building still there? I said, well, why do you ask that? He says, they pay 90 grand for the building lot. And I thought, <laughs> well, that's good news. <laughs> <laughs> so I had myself a five-year-old building, but I was only going to use it three days a month in the education space. And then I, but I had been borrowing a lot of money from Craig Hill and I, you know, I was their biggest customer. And I, I called him, I said, would you consider coming to work for me instead of where you are? And that's how it started. So for, for years, I was the biggest customer the Norris group had on the lending side. You know? Yeah. 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 Right. <laughs> Done your own deals. Yeah. That's how it started. Wow. Okay. Now, so, and you mentioned there that you got recruited to do seminars. So was that the first time you started teaching and coaching or were you doing that before? You know, I kind of, I kind of did it. Um, I forget what it was. There was a program where you could just go talk at night. And I, I, I like, I like to teach. I started speaking at clubs a little bit. So I enjoyed it. And there was a, there was a lady that was actually pretty good at promoting. And I, I actually paid to go to her seminar so I could hand her mine. Yeah. So she took it and she called me back. She says, I've never seen anything this good in my life. She says, I can definitely promote you. And so that's how that started. And yeah. then she promoted the one day or two day seminar. And then she said, I, I could promote a boot camp for you. And that's, that's kind of how it went. So it's in some ways it was very gradual. I did enjoy teaching and I needed to get better at the speaking part of it. And I never intended to speak, to be honest with you, John. That is not, it, it was not in my head to do that. That came about very accidentally too. I was, I did a trade. I couldn't get rid of some duplexes in Palm Springs. I traded for, I don't know, half a dozen mobile home lots in a park where you owned the lot. So I had to figure out how to sell the lots by putting a mobile home on it. So there was a club in Orange County, had a mobile home speaker that night. I mean, it's literally the day I decided I needed to get that. I talked to somebody and said, there's a talk about that uh, in Orange County. So I went to hear it. Jack Fullerton was the club owner. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first thing he said that night to, the, to his audience was, anybody that says they can flip houses for immediate profit in California is, is lying. And I thought, wow, that's what I do. So I thought I was <laughs> going to help him by letting him know that it was possible. So, you know, you know how they end at the end of the meeting, if there's one lingering person, that's usually going to be like yep. problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was his problem. So I said, um, I said, Jack, I just want you to know that what, what you said can't be done. I do all the time. And in the, in the parking lot, and this is kind of funny because I had a brand new uh, 1986 gold Mercedes 420 SEL and he had a Ford Pinto and he was worth probably 20 times what I was, but he just looked at that car and wrote me off. It's like, there's no way this guy is serious. So it irritated me. So I took a hundred pictures of houses I had flipped with the numbers, put it in a package and sent it to him really just to say, you know, kiss my fanny. <laughs> Calls me back and says, I've never seen anything like this. You can speak to my club. Like I was auditioning. <laughs> I said, speak to your club. I don't want to speak to your club. <laughs> and though he was persistent. So I went to speak to his club and that was a big deal. Um, yeah. It changed. Uh, who was in the audience also was a guy named A.D. Kessler who owned Creative Real Estate Magazine. And he said, uh, you know what you're doing? How about writing for my magazine? So 
it was crazy. That, that whirlwind got me into the education side and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed teaching. I really did. And this was the late nineties. And so it was 1997. You wrote your first, I think it was your first report, yeah. the California comeback. Yeah, that was January and, 97. Yeah. And so here you're a guy flipping houses. You start a hard money business, mostly to help with your own house flipping business. What, how'd you make the jump to writing reports and, you know, that report, you know, which really called the fact that the California real estate market was going to come back, followed by your report in, um, in 2006, seven, six, end of 2006, right? Um, where you called the coming crash was, was, I mean, those two things really kind of, I think, when I meet a, a real estate investor in California, right, they, they've all heard of Bruce Norris <laughs> and they've all heard it because you made both those calls and you did it in, in these big, meaty, full of data reports. You know, so here's a guy who's a, a people person closing deals because he's a good listener. And you jump from that to writing these like in-depth industry reports. What? What prompted you to do that in 97? Well, when, when Aaron graduated, when Aaron graduated in June of 95 and I bought that house for 13.3, I realized, okay, I've been doing real estate flipping for 15 years and I have no idea what moves the market. Nothing. And I thought, well, somebody's probably figured this out. So I went to the library and I pulled up every article in every newspaper and magazine for 25 years and read it about price movement. So if there was, wow. a, if there was yeah. a, if just like you and I went back to the Library of Congress and spent a few days <laughs> looking at interest rates, that's right. what I was looking at. I figured there's got to be somebody that predicted this stuff. And there wasn't. And I, I didn't know what I was even after. So when you're, when you're starting from scratch, you don't know what chart matters. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to try to figure out what makes prices move up and move and go backwards. And for the next 18 months, that's all I did was collect data. And it, it wasn't easy like now where you, you punch in, okay, uh, low, you know, interest rate chart for the last 50 years, PDF. <laughs> well, I had to go literally to libraries and with a pad and write down every number when I found the data and then make a chart of it. And then that took 18 months because I didn't know what I was looking for and I didn't want to eliminate something that might have mattered. So consumer confidence, I had those charts. And when I finally went to Maui, I had all the charts. Now, you're coming from a computer background, we'll laugh, but this is the only way I knew how to do it is I laid them on the floor, all these charts, and I had yardsticks and we had boom and bust cycles already. And so I was able to move the pieces on the ground to see if I could see a sequence of events and then if it replicated in both of the boom cycles and bus cycles, then I, I thought, okay, I've, I'm happy. And that's okay. what I, that's what I look for. And uh, so that was the first chart. Now what's, what's interesting about a report that's, if it's timely, it's too early, right? right. What, what good is writing a California crash in 2010? It's a little late. Thanks for the help. Yeah, right, right. So the mood of the participant in the audience is usually like the guy's got a hole in his head. Now, sometimes you're happy somebody's saying something positive. But when I was walking around in 06 saying California crash, 
that foreclosures are going to go up by thousands of percent. And you could get hit by half in price. That was not a popular thing to say. No. And it was not even believable. So I debated, John Burns had me debate a couple years back to back. I think it was 05, 06 against, you know, PhDs in economics. I've got a high school diploma and some street smarts. And, uh, you know, standing my ground saying, guys, when I come back here next year, you are not going to be happy. And so <laughs> when that stuff happened, you know, that was, uh, but so they weren't in the mood to hear it, which is exactly kind of what you want. You want it to be before the event, but you have to be able to see charts, charts that clearly tell you it's on its way. And so, had, so, you know, coming back to the data driven side, right. It, high school diploma versus these PhDs, like how did you even get to the point, you know, I, I, charting and statistics, right? There's, there's lies, there's damn lies and there's statistics, right? Yeah, um, but, you know, having uh, done a lot with statistics and data science myself over the years, right? It's, it's pretty easy to go wrong. We've, we've got a, one of the reasons I started this podcast is because I regularly see some really bad data in the market from big companies, even from folks who have PhDs who are putting up charts and don't really understand what it is that they're putting out there. Um, how, how did you self-educate on that enough to be able to actually put all those charts together? You know, I mean, it's, it's one thing just even just to do the charts and then to come to the conclusions is even harder, but like, how, how did you, what was your process there? I think the process, first of all, it had purity to it. I didn't go into it with a conclusion in mind. That was probably the best favor I did for myself. I wanted to understand how it worked. So that was, and, I, and that, by the way, whenever I do a report, it's the same thing. Because you and I have discussed things that you and I disagree with, that you're locked in, you know, and we've been very kind to each I'm other. I'm rarely locked in. <laughs> well, that's what I, yeah, you kind of, you're always open to learn, especially if you respect the other person's processes and what you're kind of asking. You know, when yep. you disagree with me, I go, okay, well, you know, Sean's an honorable guy. For him to land on a different square, I'm going to listen. It doesn't mean ultimately I'm going to disagree with my former conclusion, but it's always added another slice to what I consider. That's absolutely mm -hmm. true. So for this, there was, there was no blueprint. I didn't know what mattered. And so I literally started with those charts on the ground, finding the sequence that looked like it made sense. And to be honest with you, why I wrote the report had to do with my son and my dad. Because yeah. I thought California was going to take a run. And my son got married at 18, my oldest son. I thought, man, if you own a home now, it's going to be a big deal because this is going to crank. And my dad, he hadn't, didn't repair, uh, prepare for retirement really well. So if you owned an extra home, it would make a big difference. Well, That's not why I wrote it. And, um, and the, sure enough, you know, there was really Michael Carney. Was a, was a PhD at Cal Poly Pomona, and they had the best data going way back, uh, maybe 40 years in the construction industry. As a thank you, I sent him a copy of my report because I had found a lot of data with his, with his reports. And he looked at it, and he called me up. He says, you know, I really disagree with, I disagree with your conclusions. The cover said, um, you know, California real estate, come back. Yeah. California, come back. Why prices will double in the next eight years. So he disagreed with the conclusion, but he said, it's so well done. I'll let you speak to my group. Well, I didn't know who his group was. 
His group was every major builder in California, the presidents of Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. I mean, everybody was in this audience. I'm up in San Francisco. Behind me, behind the speaking podium is a 30-foot wall of glass looking down at the San Francisco Bridge. And it's just like, oh, my God, what am I doing? <laughs> what do I do? <laughs> and so, you know, I'm telling him how I came to the conclusion. So it kind of put a stake in the ground because there was media there and all that. But who was I to listen to? You know, we probably sold, I don't know, three dozen reports or some ridiculous thing. It wasn't, but people remembered it. Yeah, and for in sure. Some, in some odd way, they were just, ha I remember speaking in San, uh, San Diego and the club owner said, you know, it was just good to hear somebody say something positive about real estate. So even if it was a bunch of baloney, it was better to hear something good. <laughs> and, then, right. and then gradually it turned out to be true and yeah. momentum and then went, uh, went crazy. Um, the hardest part, and for most people, is they don't have the reverse direction. So that's what I, I love about what we've done is we're capable of saying, yes, prices are going to explode and they're going to recede. Right, right. No, you're uh, the report in 2006, obviously. Yeah. So, said, so, hey, guys, this is this market's not good and it's time to get out. And that, that had to be especially hard in your business, right? Because you were basically <laughs> telling people to stop doing business with you. Oh, not only, yeah, not only that. I mean, we were, you know, it saved... There was probably a lot of hard money loans businesses that didn't survive that because prices went down so hard on that type of inventory that we normally lend on. I mean, I was buying properties in Moreno Valley at 20% of uh, retail, former retail value. So if you had yeah. a hard money loan at 60, 65% of high value, holy yeah. cow. I had one in Stockton. I bought, when I bought it, I thought I'd sell it for 315. I ended up selling it for 260 and two years later it sold on the courthouse steps for 45. There you go. Yeah. I mean that's that's a big hit. <laughs> yeah, so we were we were aggressive in the sense that we called if like if somebody had a history of paying us all on time, when they got 30 days late, I called them. I just yeah. said, you know, do you still have a profit motive on this house? And they said, "No, man, I'm just trying to get out." I said, "Okay, let's do it, man. I'll buy it." We auctioned it off. I take a 10 grand hit instead of a hundred grand hit. Right. And so, you know, we chased it down really quickly because we could see it coming. And then, but when it really hit you, in Riverside, we were going down 3% a month. Yeah. And we were still flipping houses. So we were projecting out, okay, change the retail price 20% out six months. And you're, you know, you can figure out what you can sell it for. So, so you stayed transacting deals the whole, the whole way through. Yeah, um, we did. Now this is also something that comes up when it's always good to be in the industry. You know, that's the nice part about what we've done is it's mostly from personal experience and it's real time. So when I was selling houses and this is one of the interviews we did on the radio show at the time, there was a gentleman uh, named Mag Ziaris, who was the president of the appraisal Institute. We were heck, having a heck of a time getting something appraised because right. let's say on that Marino Valley house, okay, 365 was the number. Two years later, I buy it at the court, not the courthouse steps. That was an REO for 65 grand, put 20 grand in it, put up for sale for 120 or 125. I have 25 offers in two days and appraises for a hundred. Right. Okay. Well, wait a minute. 25 offers 
And so that's why I interviewed him because he was he was of the opinion that the appraisal world was broken basically because of the fear of a second appraisal opinion being less than your original. Right. You lose you could lose your job, you know. That whole industry broke completely. And it, you know, it, honestly, it it should have. I think the the fact that three morons were willing to overpay for a piece of property doesn't change the value of every piece of property in a town, right? Like that, that whole concept is just, I know so, you and I have always thought about, uh, there should be a fourth. Well, you, you, well, there is sort of a piece of it. You want something connected to the cap rate reasonable. Yeah. I mean, income, uh, median income for that area. Right. Especially yeah. for government back lending. Right. Like I, you know, I'm a free markets guy. So I think, you know, private companies should be able to lend whatever ridiculous amounts they want to lend and hundred percent loan to value and whatever. Um, but, uh, you know, for, you know, if the taxpayers are going to back the thing, I, I think the loan should be supported by area incomes, which is basically the, you know, economic strength of that area. Right. Yeah. We kind of left the building on that one for sure in 2005, for sure. Yeah, yeah, no, no kidding. Uh, we definitely left um, left that for sure. So, you know, so cruising into what were the first things you saw? You know, coming back to this kind of data driven thing, um, were you just were you just going in in two thousand six and saying, "Hey, it's time for another report"? Because um, you said you usually go into these things, you don't have a preconceived notion. So, what prompted you to start the report in two thousand six? that led to that big conclusion that, you know, the markets were in real trouble. I know you're going to really love this. Affordability number got too low. Yeah. (laughs) So I do pay attention to that only because again, I I didn't go into any of these studies with the preconceived idea that that affordability number is of any importance, but when it's repetitively true, then I pay attention to it. So in 1980, affordability got at 17, 89, 17, 2005, 17, then it got to 13 in 2006. Mm-hmm. And I realized something was going on and I didn't, I didn't even know how the lending world had changed, to be honest with, on, with you, Sean, because I hadn't gotten a loan in quite a long time. And so we interviewed a lender in front of the audience and I said, stated income loans, where does the income number come from? And without batting an eye in front of hundreds of people, she said, oh, we just make it up. And I went, holy cow. This is the last question I asked her. I said, hey, thanks for the information. And I really thought about, wow, that is scary stuff. And so that was, um, but I knew we were, we were already, we had written a report the year before. And it was sort of like a warning flashing saying, you might want to get your stuff out of California. And, um, and then the crash was really when I looked at it and said, this is completely, completely overdone. And I didn't even understand at the time what a collateralized debt obligation was. So that was really something I learned when my daughter got married, strangely enough. Um, I was sent an insurance policy in case, what if, you know, what if your daughter's wedding doesn't come about? Um, you can insure against its uh, outcome by writing a $500 check and getting your 25 grand back. And then when I oh. filled out the application, it said, who are you? And I was, hus- I was the father of the bride. But then there was another box to check, and it was other. And I realized, holy cow, I get it. I could have an audience of 200 people and say, we're going to fill out this form. 
we're going to bet against the outcome of my daughter's wedding. And I'm going to make sure it doesn't happen. Hmm. That's a little scary, but that's kind of what happened. You had, you had companies in New York putting their clients and stuff that they were betting against themselves. Right. right. I figured that out. That was pretty scary. Yeah, no, definitely pretty scary. And that didn't turn out well, for sure. Turned out really bad. All right. To be on the right side of that statistically, though, was was really important because you didn't have too much chance to get out after it turned bad. I mean, yes and no, though, right? Like, because, I mean, you came to your, I decided at the end of 2005, I didn't want to own any more real estate, right? You decided in 2006, yet middle of 2007, you still have Ben Bernanke saying, hey, this is a subprime crisis. It's largely contained. You know, it's really nothing to worry about. You know, house prices are going to be fine. You had um, the National Association of Realtors writing their book about, you know, there's no bubble. So, I mean, uh, the thing I love about real estate is you actually have a lot of time, right? Like usually if you're paying attention, you've got a year or more. (laughs) Well, you got to go back to think about why we had time because it was all based on BS. See, that's why I like statistics because you can make, I, I wouldn't mind making an early decision to avoid an, a 2008 crash. Right. So, I, no, I was already all sold by the time 2006. All, whatever I wanted to sell in California was gone because I, I'm, I was worried in 05. Right. So, that's why I like a, a data different uh, a data-driven approach because it gives you a, a warning uh, light where you can go, okay, I want to sell to a, a willing crowd. The last home I sold in California was in 05. This is a home I had only owned for a year. It flipped, got flipped to me by a friend. I promised to keep the tenant in there for a year. And then the, the day after a year, I said, I'm going to go ahead and list the house. Now, this was a crazy market in 05. I said, I'm going to pay for you guys to enjoy the day at Disneyland. I'm going to list it in the morning. I'm going to pull the listing at night. So it was, a, it was a, basically a 10-hour listing that got 27 offers. That was the market. <laughs> and I never painted the house. Oh, my gosh. You know, so when I, when I want to sell something, I want to sell it to a crowd that's going to be there. The, now, the opposite of that, we were building a series of new homes in Rosamond. We got down, and the prices progressed from two ten to two eighty five with people camping out and whole deal in Rosamond, which is kind of in the middle of nowhere. Um, but the last phase, there was there were things that started to occur. Was, this is probably late oh five, and we had two escrows fall out at two eighty five, and they ultimately sold at an auction for two oh five. It happened huh. that fast. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure for the, I, I do remember for the builders, and this was one of the things, you know, was a sign for me uh, to get out was, you know, you went from the builders having a, a line of people, you know, out the door waiting for, you know, new inventory to come online and, and people putting down deposits and the rest to, you know, there was a builder in Stockton that started to offer a free swimming pool. Right? <laughs> and it's like, okay, wait, something, something pretty seriously changed here. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, and so, so I, you know, I think there's plenty of those, those signs uh, well, that's, that's out there, but it, I guess for them, it did happen quite fast. Oh, it's because they rely on, they don't rely on the data. They honestly don't. They rely on the physical evidence that they have 
is how many people showed up and willing to put something into escrow. But if at the time it changes, that whole world can change in 60 Too days. Late. You can't change your building model. You're, you're tied up land at the highest price and you're stuck with it. You're going to lose it. Um, that's a bad way to operate as a builder, but that's, uh, somebody told me that, okay, even if you are exactly right, there would be no way for me to be able to tell that to a builder right now. I'd be fired. They would find a consultant that would tell them what they wanted to hear. Yeah. Right. And yeah, right. I agree. And, you know, probably some of them certainly put, took a lot of personal risk and others probably weren't that much on the hook, right? It was banks and others that were on the hook. Sure. Um, so they were better off to keep the facade going than to acknowledge it because their income stopped when they stopped and they didn't really have personally have the risk. I can understand that completely. Can you imagine having a big company with a hundred employees in 2006 when the, when it's booming like crazy, you have a company meeting and say, Hey guys, we're going to shut it down for two years, get to the sideline, buy this stuff for 10 cents on the dollar and I'll rehire you in a couple of years. How do you have that conversation? Right. That's tough. Yeah. No. And the bank's probably calling you saying, Hey, you know, we'd really like to do another deal. We'd like to give you more money. You guys are such a successful operator, right? So even the banks are making that mistake and pushing you that direction. Yeah. They use the same charts apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no doubt. If you use how you feel, you know, that's really the secret is I have to divorce myself from how I feel because I feel like everyone else. Right. The charts speak to me and tell me this is locked and loaded and in the past has been a certainty that this is what unfolds. And I've come to believe that. No, my partners and some of my uh, vendors and the rest all thought I was crazy at the end of 2005 when I said, I'm done. Yeah. I'm not buying anything else. And they said, this is the greatest market ever. Like, how could you possibly get out? And And I probably got out a little early you know, six months or so. Definitely yeah. some guys made some more money, but most of those guys that made some more money also lost a bunch because they didn't stop. Yeah. Well, Warren Buffett has a theory about that. It's always best to sell early. <laughs> He's a pretty smart guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Out of all this, you came up with a, a quadrant system, um, you know, in kind of your market cycles, market timing. I, you know, I don't know that, I've fully bought into the whole kind of market timing and that there's these different quadrants. Um, okay. But uh, so can, can, can you give us an overview of that? And Well, I'll even use sense? years that we're really familiar with. Okay. So let's say in 2008, it hit the fan. That's quadrant two. Prices are now descending. Okay. If I, if I think it's a rational decision to say that California is going to build a house again someday. I'm going to look for deals in two major spots. I'm going to look at inventory that's coming from lenders that could be heavily discounted either by REO sales or opening business trustee sale or even short sales. But if I was a land person, I'd go after dirt because you're the only buyer in the world. And that's what quadrant two would tell me as to what inventory to go after that I literally might be able to buy for nothing. Okay. Because there's just, there's nobody interested in that. In that's that exactly particular right. set of circumstances, there's nobody that's a buyer. 
kind of back to your $13,000 house, you were the only person in the nation that wanted to buy that house. Right. So just to give you an example, Doug Duncan, chief economist of Fannie Mae, I'm going to do an interview with him first quarter of 2015. To prepare for that, I studied their last quarter 2014 financials in that it said 25% of all of Fannie Mae's losses come from one state, Florida. And I thought, holy cow, that's a pretty big number. I looked at why that was, and they had a four-year foreclosure process. They were in 2011, in 2015. I called up my buddy Alex. I said, poke around and let's buy the remaining lots of a building track that failed. And it took him a day because we were the only taker. Right. And that's where my, that's where my uh, rentals are. So okay. yeah, that quadrant tells me now. So the skill level, think about the skill level that you're talking about. What would you do at trustee sales? If that was your only skill right now, what would you do? In that particular market? Oh, right now. Oh, right now. Yeah, there's not really uh, very many trustee sales at the moment. They are, they are coming back uh, a little bit. Okay. Um, they had stopped because of the foreclosure moratorium. And, uh, but we are seeing some signs of, of life there, but yeah, for the last couple of months, right. You know, well, not just a talking, couple, I mean, honestly, isn't like the last five years when you're in a bull market and you're in quadrant four running, there's other well, ways. Yeah. But you know, I, I did almost all my buying of trustee sales from 2002 to 2006. That's interesting. Okay. And there were more the last five years than there were 2002 to 2006. Okay. Right. So um, there were more competitors in the market and, and that was partially my fault, but um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> <laughs> but, That's funny. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, there were more foreclosures. So, you know, you could still, you know, it, it was tough. It was very competitive. The margins were small, but, uh, you know, I made a nice living in a, in a bull market in trustee sales. So, so in a uh, certainly not in the foreclosures in the moratoriums. Let's say in the last, five years, you would have been well served to be building spec homes. Oh, for sure. Yeah, you get rewarded. So that's, so that's a quadrant four activity. Okay. Well, here's the idea. If all I know how to do is buy REOs. Right. Then I, I, in then a specific I'm, quadrant. I'm going to be, I'm going to have some dead time in my career. Right. So I have to know how to talk to people. That's quadrant four activity. Got it. If a quadrant two bunch of REOs, I need to build relationship with people that control inventory. That's my skill. Okay. So it's more about there's certain states of the market, right? It's not, a, it's not so much a, a timing cycle. This one happens and then six months later, this happens. And then six months no. later, this happens. It's more like there's certain sets of conditions at which particular deals are more prevalent than other deals. That's Is that right. how you describe it? Exactly. So. Let's say you have the you have people skills and you can talk to people and you talk you want to call people that are in foreclosure in 2010. Well, at the end of the week, you're going to need therapy because you'll talk to over oh, how many were there? Were there enough to talk to? Yeah, and right. have equity? No, it's right. a completely worthless function in quadrant. You know, in quadrant two, you don't call people in foreclosure. Okay. Okay, I, my, I'm I'm buying. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense to me. So what, uh, in, uh, especially in California, I think we're, we're working on building a national audience. I think probably more of our listeners are California based. Where are we right now? Right? Like I've been, 
surprised and not surprised uh, by some of the activity we've seen here as a result of, of COVID. What what are your takes on uh, the market, maybe nationally, and then maybe, you know, I know you've paid a lot of attention to Florida, California, any of those that you want to speak to and, and where you think we're at? Well, you know, for somebody that pays attention to charts to say that we're in uncharted territory is a pretty <laughs> accurate statement. This, this reminds me a little bit of Grand Junction, Colorado, where the damage was caused by an industry leaving right. in a day and uh, creating unemployment that was 25% for an area. So we really have a very strange market. I, I mean, I know you pay attention to the market. We all have contacts where I don't think too many people are having trouble selling inventory that they, that they have, even maybe even for more than they thought they would. So you have people pull inventory off. So you got a shortage of inventory. If you look at year-over-year volume, it's down by quite a bit, but there was a big hole for two months or something. So that's California's market. In Florida, we're building homes and we're selling them in a day. Right. Um, and so I don't... Here's the question. Are we going to have round two or round three of the coronavirus take employment to a number that's Great Depression levels? So... That I don't know the answer to, and I think that's the important answer. The foreclosure numbers to me matter, but I don't think there's any appetite to foreclose on people that lost their job. There'll be policies that prevent that by and large, I think. I agree. That, yeah, so you're not going to have this avalanche of chart going crazy in, in foreclosures. You would certainly, I think we're going to certainly see more, but I don't think we're going to see a repeat of 2008. Correct. So... I, th I think real estate, especially, you know, you and I had, remember, I always remember that email where I emailed you my idea that someday when we had a recession, the next recession, we'd see a mortgage rate start with a two. Right. Your response to me was, I think you're right. And yeah. I respect that. So you were speaking in front of audiences uh, and I was speaking in front of audiences about something that literally had never happened. Right. And we knew it hadn't happened because you and I went back to Washington, D.C. for, what, a few days and pulled up. Looked at interest rates, rates back into the Mesopotamia. Yeah. So, I mean, who would do that? <laughs> that? That was fun. That was that was a great trip. And, you know, and, it, and it, was, it was interesting to me and it was great when I got that email because, you know, it was such kind of a radical thought that, you know, okay, when we hit the next bit of trouble, interest rates are probably going to go into the twos, right? That was a, that was a radical thought at the time. And, um, and I had bounced it off some folks and they kind of thought I was crazy. <laughs> and when you came to the same conclusion, it was like, it was such a relief, right? Like when I got that email, I remember hopping on the phone and going, oh my God, you think that too? <laughs> it was great. You know, like you, I probably, I was going to say it anyway, because it's where I had landed. Right, it, exactly. It, it didn't mean there was a historic presence for it because there wasn't. Right. Well, we're looking at the tea leaves going, okay, well, where are we going to go? You know? And it is interest, it, it's interesting. I've been following that here, and I thought we would get there faster. And I did, I did too. The independent mortgage banks and the trouble they had around their business model with how they use the repo market and, you know, how they use their servicing rights to fund the pool, to buy more, to sell, and just kind of how tenuous that is and that they have to forward the payment even if they don't receive it. Yeah, I didn't know. Right? 
that one was that was news to me and it was uh um you know it, it's surprising like as much as i've dug into this over the last years or you have you know that there's still things like that that are like kind of like shockingly surprising right that that a servicer who's collecting money and forwarding it on you know to the ultimate lender has to forward the money even if they don't receive the payment like who came up with that like yeah, what a crappy idea that was guarantor seat i like that yeah <laughs> <serve> I, well, <laughs> <my loan. laughs> yeah i don't see how they ended up in that business like that's not a business i would go into right like i gotta forward it even if i don't receive it I'm like no well, well if you think about that i don't know what percentage they they charge of servicing but let's say it's three percent or something like that that means if they get three percent delinquent they're 100 percent down right yeah revenue yeah that's a crazy risk yeah especially when a state comes in and says oh by the way we're gonna have uh you know forbearance and moratorium and <laughs> and and by the way uh, independent mortgage bank we're not going to help you with that that's that's on you like that's right. what yeah. <laughs> like that doesn't even make sense to me so you know i think some of that kept rates and probably are still keeping rates from being as low maybe as they should be right now i mean i think we just sent a new record low in the last uh it was yesterday or something um but, the spread uh, though is big from ten year to uh to the mortgage is is typically two percent to one point seven five and it's if that was true, you'd be at two and a half without batting an eye right right and you know the other thing that was uh, surprising to me because I, I keep looking at kind of where we're at with this increasing debt um you know i I'm finding the best uh analog to be Japan yeah. And you know Japan's mortgage rate starts with a, a number in the one, right? And and so when I found that out, that was that was the thing that solidified that idea for me that it could be in the the twos here in our next you know downturn. And I don't think we're all the way there yet, but I I still think I think we're likely, I think we're still headed in that direction because at least for now, you know we're talking about maybe another bailout. And the rest, and putting that much more debt out there, kind of, you kind of have to force rates lower. I think. Well, and see, this is the, this is the thing is that we didn't have a strong enough economy to make the spread to where we could get to a four or five percent rate. And I think that was in your mind and mine is how do you get back to normal before you need to take it away? And we never got to anywhere close to normal. And if your spread of taking away is usually four or four and a half percent, and you started two. That's a problem. And yeah. So, so you end you end up going to other types of policies quicker. You can't just reduce interest rates. You have to start writing checks and you have to come, you know, with all these programs that increases the debt. So yeah, if you start having high interest rates attached to ultimately, you know, what we put on that cover at the end of a a decade of forty trillion, you know, if that's attached to a five percent mortgage rate, that's a problem or five percent rate. So right. it makes sense. It, it almost none of it makes sense where you start looking at the numbers and go, okay, is this ever going to get paid? Tongue in cheek. I don't even remember this, but uh, when we had the September meeting, uh, I survived. There was negative interest rates in mortgages in one of the, one foreign country. And I said, so hypothetically, let's do this. Let's write a 50 year minus 2% loan and we'll just, it can make a credit every two, every year. And in 50 years, we'll have no debt. 
Right. That seems pretty simple. But it negative, seems pretty simple. Negative, negative interest rates. We're going to go there. Yeah, just make them so they pay themselves off with right. negativity. Yeah, you can <laughs> all you want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How well, that's modern monetary theory, right? To some degree, right. right? Like to the degree that we don't have inflation, there's no reason not to print um, money. And we should print money up until the point we achieve the inflation goals that we want to have, right? Well, see, that's what's interesting is most of, most of what we're trying to accomplish is to get out of what I think is a deflationary environment and a GDP that's above zero. Right. So, you know, we're not trying to, oh, we're bumping up against 2%. Uh, we're not. <laughs> yeah, no, and that's, I think, one of the things that a lot of people misunderstand about, you know, when you print money, we all say, oh, print money, that's inflationary, right? That's kind of what we've heard, what we've been taught. But when you have this amount of deflation going on, right, from COVID and unemployment and the rest, you print that money and you're really just, reflating or getting it back to kind of the level. We're not really, you know, I don't think with the stimulus we've seen so far, we don't really have any risk of inflation. I think it's possible they could overstimulate to the point where we get inflation, but I don't think we're close. Okay. Well, there's two things. Um, You know, just let's bat this around a little bit. As far as the population of Japan, that was very deflationary, correct? Or right. make up of their population. We're not quite as exaggerated, but our population is more deflationary than inflationary. But the side of the world that you're very familiar with is all the technology, uh, the robotics and all that. That's pretty deflationary. And I, I always enjoyed our rides to the Nixon Library because every every year you'd come up with a zinger, like, like self-driving cars that I laughed at, you know, and now it's very much a reality. But you said one time, America's got to figure out how to have society when 40% of the people don't need to work. Yeah. Wow. And I still believe that. I know. Yeah. We just saw um, Dorsey, I guess, just did a, uh, is doing a basic income experiment uh, too, or just uh, Jack Dorsey, founder of Twitter. I think it was him um, that just said he wanted to, he was funding a basic income experiment. And I think a lot of us in tech, you know, think that it's going to take something along those lines, right? And I think we have to think about, like, so many people find their personal value uh, in the work that they do, right? Right. The value that they bring to society and the value that other brings to society. Like, that's just kind of the lens we use to value or judge people. And, you know, in when we reach a point where we really don't need everybody to work, which is, you know, is technically very feasible, right? Like I, I, I see that future easily. Um, where, where do you find that self-worth and value? And I, I think that's something we're going to have to confront for sure. That's a little scary. <laughs> you get so efficient. We don't need, we don't need 40% of our workers. That's just uh, that's an astounding yeah. thing. And yeah, you soil green, right? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, you don't want to get up in the morning and go. I mean, I don't think most people would go. Okay, well, I get a check today. I'm good. I, I just don't think that would be a very satisfactory existence. But you know, I think that that you know, uh, like I think there's a lot of places that we can generate value that isn't like handing stuff across a counter. That isn't you know. I think there's a lot of jobs today and 
jobs are still important, right? And that's that's where we're at. But there's a lot of jobs today that, you know, those folks could probably bring more value to society doing other things, right? Well, so, I think some really smart people, you being one of them, they ought to have a group meeting and figure out what. <laughs> <laughs> we better get on that. Yeah, better get on that one. Yeah. <laughs> better get on that. Well, that's an interesting note to uh, to close on. But we are coming up on uh, coming up on the hour. I don't know if you have anything else you wanted to touch base on or bring up that I haven't asked. I let me just ask one thing because the mortgage money was the problem before. Do you see the corporate? debt in the CLO world causing a problem this time? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. Like you look at some of these valuations, you know, 30 times, 50 times earnings and like the tech sector, especially. And it's just like, what madness is this? Right. Um, and you have the Fed buying corporate debt for the first time. Right. So they're propping right. that market up. That's right. Um, you know, I guess my big picture takeaway is that we are long past living in a free market or open markets or even a capitalistic, you know, I mean, it's still capitalistic, but it's not true capitalism that's going on right now, right? The the government picks is picking winners and losers, right? By buying corporate debt, by even buying mortgage-backed securities, right? They're propping up the real estate industry. They're propping up real estate prices. By not having foreclosures, they're going to keep real estate prices inflated. But these are just these are policy choices, right? Um, so I I think in my mind this idea that that there are. Uh, free markets is dead in, in my mind, right? So it's important to look at where stimulus is coming from, where it can come from in the future and how far that will go. And I personally think it will go quite far. So no, I'm not worried about corporate debt. They'll just write a check and solve it. Yeah. yeah I mean, the, the, again, the, there's going to be winners and losers, right? So there will be companies that they let fail and make an example of, and there'll be others bail out. It probably comes down to, you know, the value that that company, you know, perceived value that that company provides to society and its importance, you know. It's kind of like, you know, why we didn't bail out the Weimar Republic, you know, after World War One, um, and why we, you know, uh, have continued to support Japan, despite having, you know, terrible debt to GDP um, for the last 40 years. I'm just picking winners and losers. Okay. Well, that was my big question. That's my take on it. What's yours? <laughs> I think I, I agree with you. I think they're going to write a check big enough to where they solve it because they can't afford not to. Yeah. That's the problem is that like another Lehman in that world is a big, that's a big number. There's, yeah. I just read a report before getting getting on this uh, with you, and I, I forget where it was, but it was talking about Wells Fargo. Well, off the books, Wells Fargo has a trillion dollars of like debt that doesn't count on their books. You go, what? what? A trillion, a trillion dollars? dollars? <laughs> just a just a little number. Yeah. You talk. Okay. Well. So, I guess you're 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 right until until you're not. Or is it just, uh, like you say, modern 
monetary policy just takes it to never, never land. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, uh, you, you can continue to print money up until you start having serious inflation, right? So, and that's kind of what modern monetary theory says, right? Is, is that so long as it's not inflation, you can, but, and then once you start having, and, and I won't pretend to be an expert on, on MMT, but uh, you know, once you start having an inflation, then you bring in, in taxes to, to bring that back under control. So, um, you know, uh, but I, I think bigger picture, right? It's more kind of fall of empires kind of stuff, right? The, you know, us replacing, uh, replacing Britain or, you know, before that Denmark and before that China, right? Like, I think at some point, and this is, I think, where we were actually very lucky that COVID was a worldwide phenomena and that all governments are having to stimulate and all governments are kind of in the same boat. Um, is because if it was just us being the world's reserve currency and we started printing a loan uh, too significantly, right? It, that could have led to the end of, you know, the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency. And I think that is when, that's when it's a very, very different game. Is that, you know, is that the next uh, black swan or the one after or the one after? Um, you read- a little hard to say, but the trend right now is not good, right? So our economy versus China's economy, you know, China looks like, you know, they they could be the next world um leader if we don't change course and make some, uh, you know, make some improvements. So I think that's the, that's, that's where it ends, right. Is a, is a shift in global leadership and, you know, uh, countries, Denmark and and other places that were, um, you know, global leaders in the past. And and it's not, they're not, it's not like they're, not gone over they're not gone they're you know people are still there and doing their thing and i don't think it's the end of the world but it'll be a change have you read ray dalio's material i've i've looked at that a little bit yeah 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 it's definitely what he's calling for right he's saying and he's saying it's pretty soon i don't know you know i hope he's wrong about that but he's saying it's kind of a 75 year cycle and we're five years away yeah, I, th- I think he thinks it's inevitable. I don't, you know, the soon part, I guess, is uh, uh, play it out, but I- inevitable because of he's such a history buff that, you know, when you're going back 500 years and you go, okay, yeah, that's what happens. So, yeah, that's a, it's a scary but thought. We have a, there's a very different thing, very different thing in the world now where the inevitable thing I don't buy into, right? Because when you do have good hindsight and you can learn from it, Right. I, I don't know that, you know, in Denmark with the rise of Britain, like they were looking back at, oh, okay, how did, how did we take over from, what were the 10 leading indicators of why we took over from China? Right. Like, I don't think they were thinking like that. Right. Like, we have the ability to look right. at all that data and think That's about right. that and go, what are these things that we have to do to make sure that we're a leader? Right. And, you know, yeah. Anyways. Uh, well, I won't say what I was about to say. Um, I, I don't think it's, I don't think we are on that path to remain a leader right now. And I'm not optimistic about 
the leadership of either party to put us on that path. But I think we need to get on that path and on it soon. I will agree with that. John, thanks for taking time to do this. I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you, Bruce. This was uh, great. And uh, our third edition of the Data-Driven Real Estate Podcast. And glad we got into how you went from being a people person closing uh, deals to being, you know, really, uh, you know, the leading voice of uh, certainly the California market for sure in the industry with your, you know, major reports that so perfectly called the uh, called the market. So great talking with you, Bruce. Thanks so much. Thanks, John. All right. Take care. Thanks so much for listening to the Data Driven Real Estate Podcast. Check out datadrivenrealestate.com to find show notes, be able to find links to the resources mentioned on the show, but also to ask questions of today's guest and possibly guests in the future. Uh, You'll be able to click over to community and we'd love your input. While you're at your favorite place to listen to the podcast, please don't forget to like, favorite, subscribe, share. Uh, We'd love your support. Once again, datadrivenrealestate.com and we'll see you next week.